RNZ National, and it's time for a midweek Media Watch misinformation special. Good evening, Hayden. Kia ora, Karen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's misinformation, all misinformation all the time this week on Media Watch. From you or who? It's not from me, I hope. So I, for a misinformation special, I actually am going to begin with a pretty decent piece of journalism by News Hub, and it's by Connor Whitten. It's on COVID-19 long haulers at interviews. People that have had COVID-19 are still suffering symptoms a long time afterward. Now, this story went up on News Hub. It's all fine. It goes up on their Facebook page, and that's where... Janine Crossan gets involved. Now, Janine Crossan is New Zealand's 37th COVID-19 patient, and she's been pretty outspoken about her treatment by the media, and she looks at some of the comments on this story on the News Hub Facebook page, and she kind of calls out News Hub for the tenor of some of these comments. And her criticism, again, for me, it raises this vexed question of whether news organisations are taking enough responsibility for the comments posted on their social media. Well, when I worked at MediaWorks, there were no moderators on their social media pages, but that may have changed. That went on for many years. It was due to staff shortages, really. But this has been a subject of a lot of debate and even some court cases internationally, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. Now, I I went to the Herald and I don't remember we were actually... Uh, too attentive to the Facebook comments either. But it's definitely something that people are paying a lot more attention to now. And that's for a a few reasons. Now, you might remember this court case in Australia where News Corp publications, Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, Sky News Australia, The Bolt Report, they were all... They were all actually taken to court over some defamatory comments on their Facebook page about the Northern Territory youth detainee Dylan Voller. And Dylan Voller uh, took them to court and said that they are legally liable for these defamatory comments about him, and the court agreed with him. And that judgment has actually been upheld in several courts now. And so in Australia, news organisations are essentially legally liable for what other people say in the comment sections of their Facebook page. But defaming someone is different, isn't it? If you defame someone, you defame someone. Yeah, but I I guess news organisations are saying that it's not them defaming, it's the people in their comment section. So they shouldn't be held legally liable for that as the publisher. This is where the debate is. Now, New Zealand news organisations, they don't have that same kind of legal responsibility yet, but we have had situations where... News organisations have been held accountable over the Facebook comments on their pages. Uh, notably, RNZ got sanctioned by the Online Media Standards Authority in 2016 when RNZ actually failed to delete some threatening and abusive Facebook comments about then Prime Minister John Key. Threatening as in threatening his life. Yeah, they were threatening his life and it all became a bit of a brouhaha. It got posted on whale oil. It was that kind of thing. Now, these judgments are all about eliminating abusive and insulting comments, but there's actually not just insulting. There's always going to be trolls, but it's not just that now, is it? It's this increasing amount of misinformation that's going on on Facebook, and you'll see it with Billy Takahika Jr., uh, the Advance NZ Party, and all of these conspiracy theorists that are coalescing on social media, and they're actually targeting news organizations' Facebook page pages. And 
I remember this. In 2018, I actually reported on news organisations' Facebook Live videos being just absolutely overthrown by anti-1080 activists, just hundreds and hundreds of comments, swarms of them. And now those people, they've often... They've sort of migrated, I guess. There's a lot of crossover with QAnon, other conspiracy theories, and they're also highly online. They're also targeting places like uh, News Hub. And if you look at the comments that Janine Crossan is really angry about, that's more the tenor of them. The comments that are saying, oh, who's paying you, COVID-19 patient, to say that you're heavily affected by this? COVID-19 is a hoax, that kind of stuff. Interesting, because just today, Hayden, I have a debate on the Lately Facebook group page about climate change, and it's in regard to a story that we did on the wildfires on the west coast of the USA, and it was a request from a group member to ban climate change deniers. I think that's really interesting. I think there's tiers to this, right? You have the first tier, which is just you'd, you'd love to be able to moderate hateful, abusive comments, defamatory comments. Then you have the dangerous comments as well, like those ones. If you don't, if you need another reminder of how dangerous this lack of belief in COVID nineteen, this COVID nineteen conspiracy theory stuff is, we had our second death today from the Auckland cluster. Two people in one family. A great tragedy for that family. And then to see that and go and say, "Oh, COVID nineteen doesn't exist," or "Don't wear a mask," you know, that's pretty offensive and it's also dangerous. Then there's stuff like climate denial, where the vast majority of science is obviously in favour of the view that climate change exists. And news organisations probably do want to, you know, have the tenor of their Facebook pages, you know, all of the comments having a decent scientific backing underlying them, but they just don't have time, right? There's no time. As you say, there wasn't enough staff back when you were in Media Works. There wasn't enough staff when I was at the Herald. And there's there's this problem where if they're going to be held legally liable for the Facebook comments on their site, there's hundreds of these things. And they don't have the resources because, ironically, Facebook is taking all their revenue so they don't have the money to police their Facebook comments. Well, personally, I've decided to drop Facebook... Twitter, Instagram, all of them except for the one that I do for work because I just don't want to put another cent into their pockets and also I don't need to be that connected. But what is Facebook's responsibility in all of this? Yeah, and your moral stance is one that's being increasingly held by people across the globe, but of course these platforms are also immensely popular because they connect you to other people. They do have this function. News organisations... Uh, obviously annoyed about this idea that they are ultimately responsible for what's posted on Facebook, given Facebook is this globe-spanning, immensely profitable, powerful, like, it defines political systems, company, and they are essentially eschewing any responsibility for the editorial content that they provide. And at the same time as that, they're not actually giving media organisations stuff like the ability to turn off comments or even pre-moderate comments. So You can't turn off any comments. I mean, there, there are developments that are coming through, but news organisations, this is News Corp's argument over in Australia, we can't even turn off comments, and yet we're legally liable for what's, what's posted there. Well, this criticism isn't exactly an outlier because Facebook's often under fire for its approach to misinformation, particularly lately. 
Yeah, I mean, lately, <laughs> the US election's coming up. There's a huge spotlight on misinformation on Facebook. QAnon's obviously taken off across the world, so that's being fueled by Facebook misinformation, Facebook groups, and it's not being policed properly. But I just really want to recommend one story. BuzzFeed has been leaked, a 6,200-word internal mem- memo from someone at Facebook called Sophie Zhang, and she is a data scientist, and she essentially says, you know, she's lost count of the number of politicians she's seen that are taking uh, essentially manipulative and disingenuous actions to manipulate political systems across the globe. She wasn't given any support in her work. She thinks that the fact that she was drained and tired and didn't know what to prioritise probably means that by now she has blood on her hands because of some of the results of these misinformation campaigns. So... Yeah, Facebook is definitely under fire for its approach to misinformation. Did you say that's a a leaked memo? 6,000 words. 6,200 words. And she actually didn't speak to BuzzFeed, but it was obviously leaked to BuzzFeed from inside Facebook. So Facebook making any moves at all to stop their misinformation? So Facebook does say that it is making moves to clamp down on misinformation. It... Recently, actually in New Zealand, it's precedent setting. Uh, it removed an ad from uh, Billy Tikahika's party, Advance NZ, today, and that ad was claiming that the government had passed a forced vaccination law, which is, of course, false, and it was actually based on manipulated media. You, you also get recently in the States, Facebook has been taking down claims that activists started the recent wildfires on the west coast of the US, and they say that's in line with just advice from public health officials who say that the, those claims were making it more difficult for them to fight the fires. So it's not just Facebook comments. People like Billy Tekahika Jr. from Advance NZ, they're crossing into more mainstream politics. Mm. But how does the media cover these people without themselves being used to spread this misinformation? It's incredibly difficult, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult question. And there's been examples of it being done well, and there's been examples of it being done badly. So I'm going to play an example of it being done arguably pretty badly. This is News Hub Nation's Simon Shepard interviewing Billy Tekahika Jr. in late August. Uh, good morning. You're making a digital impression, but you've been roundly criticised as a conspiracy theorist, are you? No, not at all. So I guess the, the, that's an easy uh, an attack accusation to be aimed at us. What we are, we are a critical thinking party asking uh, the government the serious questions that the New Zealand public are demanding that are answered. All right, I, I want to look at something that came up this week. Yeah, so that's sorted. That was Simon Shepard talking to Billy Tekahika Jr. And the rest of the interview essentially went like that, where he would put things to him. And uh, the issue with it was that it's really hard to fact-check these things on the fly. And this wasn't the only time that news organisations have really struggled to pin down people like Billy TK Jr. and conspiracy theorists and end up kind of just being used as a vessel for their misinformation. The documentary maker David Farrier, who's done pretty extensive writing on QAnon and conspiracy theories, he pinged News Hub over the weekend for essentially doing stenography journalism on the recent anti-lockdown rally in Aotea Square. There was no fact-checking inside that article. And you'll remember last time I was on Midweek, I actually mentioned a Herald report that... uh, seemingly accidentally 
promoted the, an offshoot of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory in early September. So they're, they're just getting in uh, an article or a press release and doing it verbatim. Yeah, and I don't know where it comes from. It might be just that these news organisations or some people within them are not particularly well-versed with these conspiracy theories. Uh, maybe they just don't feel the need to fact-check them, but actually they're pretty dangerous and just putting out information like that can legitimise them and win more converts to them. So there has been good coverage, we hope, and how do you cover this stuff well? Yeah, so there's been some good stuff that I'd love to highlight. The Herald's David Fisher recently wrote a really excellent account uh, of one of Billy Tikahika's meetings in Opanoni, and it puts all of his claims there, but it fact-checks every one of them and flags them. And News Hub hasn't been all bad either. The actual online story on that Simon Shepard interview with uh, Billy TK, it contains pretty rigorous fact-checking. And these reports that do well, they often contain a kind of truth sandwich. They'll say, flag he's done a false claim, put the false claim there, and then explain the real facts below them. And that's pretty important stuff because these theories, as I mentioned, are pretty dangerous to public health. Well, the king of all of this in terms of putting stuff out there has got to be Donald Trump, doesn't it? Yeah, this is this question of how to handle misinformation is something that has been with the US media since the rise of Donald Trump, really in 2016. That's when it became this incredibly lightning rod issue and something that is a, like a, a proper existential question for the press. And so... There's actually a little bit of a similarity between how to cover Donald Trump and how to cover someone like uh, Billy Tikahika, where both of these leaders will say stuff that's false but is hard to fact-check in the moment, and then they'll move on quickly. And when they're confronted with some of their more outlandish ideas and claims, they'll often sort of tend to obfuscate or or sort of diffuse them and say that that's a bit of a misrepresentation. Just politicians then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even even if it's against their will, reporters can easily end up becoming vessels for misinformation. And you saw that in the US in 2016. There was really no awareness of that possibility. And you'd have stuff like CNN just covering uh, unfettered, uh, just going live to Trump rallies. And just there would be screeds of misinformation that would come back, of course. So how have they managed to mitigate this? I mean, some haven't. I don't want to say that there's been some sort of perfect adjustment in the US. It simply hasn't. Organisations are still struggling immensely with how to deal with Donald Trump. But you do have organisations like CNN that have learned a little from the 2016 campaign, and they now employ reporters like Daniel Dale, who you're about to hear, who, who carries out these breathless fact-checks of the president's claims. He said stocks are owned by, quote, everybody. Just about half of Americans own stocks. He repeated his nonsense about testing causing cases. Testing merely reveals and helps fight cases. He said that Biden has agreed to a Bernie Sanders a style socialized health care. He fought Sanders on that issue. He has very much not agreed to a Sanders style plan. And Don, this is a preliminary list. I have hours of fact checking tonight to do because there is even more than this. So this was just a fire hose of lying again from the president. Do you need a drink of water? (laughs) So that was Daniel Dale, and I want to say that I started that clip about 90 seconds in, so he'd already done a lot of fact-checking before he got to there. It's difficult when it comes to somebody making a claim that as an interviewer, 
you're not sure whether that's right or it's wrong. And normally you'd have the, the time to go and you know investigate it if it's not a subject that you'd fully au fait with. So it is a difficult subject, isn't it? It's hard to do these live TV interviews. Live TV, yeah. Especially. And that, that's why I'm not... Simon Shepard's a great interviewer. He's a great journalist. I don't want to say... But it is hard... To when when someone, if you're not well versed, especially if you're not well versed, and and you're not really researched on exactly what they're talking about, it's hard to fact check them in the moment. Yeah, I understand that, but journalists, of course, should know, for example, geopolitics if that's their area, and they should be able to respond to someone making false claims. But uh, they may not have all the scientific data on hand to disprove something like a conspiracy theory if that's not their area of expertise. When we're talking about conspiracy theories, there's often this huge index of law that you almost have to have a PhD in to really get to truly fact-check them and get to the most outlandish root of what they're claiming. So, I mean, that's actually really important work, and I keep saying this for journalists to do, to actually learn this stuff because this stuff is coming up again and again. It's, they're coalescing together these conspiracy theorists. It's getting more prominent. And when you have time to do it, that's great. Yeah, and you don't. You don't. I, you absolutely don't. As a journalist, it's so hard. And I, my story on the weekend was about how journalists are overworked and under-resourced. So I totally understand that that's a hard thing. Well, so how else can we get to the truth? So fact-checking alone isn't actually going to do it. And there's been some psychological research on this where actually sometimes fact-checking can just drive people to reinforce their position and re-entrench themselves. It's better than just carrying misinformation just as, as a fire hose of it. That's very interesting that you say that because, because you may just look at it and say, is the journalist actually got the fact right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, sometimes. But yes, you, you, you might say that, but also you're hoping that the journalists will be relying on a series of experts and independently verifiable claims. And whereas, well, someone like Daniel Dale is. And it's, it's just verifiable claims. The things that he's fact-checking are just true because, you know, he'll say something like, Trump said Biden said this. Biden did not say this. So, I mean, that's obvious. But <laughs> fact-checking alone will not save you. And maybe the stuff that actually will save you is more baked into the structure of journalism itself. And I talk about this a lot. But objectivity is possibly the biggest hindrance to U.S. journalists in particular covering Donald Trump, this idea of being unbiased and objective and those two things sound good and they are good, but they're often used to give what the NYU journalism lecturer Jay Rosen calls symmetrical coverage to asymmetrical issues. So someone says the moon is purple and another person says the moon is white. You don't just quote them both and call it a day. One of those is true and one of those is not true. And so, and neither of those are true, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> journalists' journalist job is not to just quote both people, but to actually make a real concerted effort to pursue the truth and to say what is actually factual. So you've got two viewpoints or two perspectives, and you're reporting on both of them. Does that mean you get in there yourself and say they're either right or they're wrong? In a way, yes, or you simply do not actually print the inaccurate claim. You'll see this in stuff like Stuff's Climate Change section. They don't print climate denial because it's not a valid science. They only print what they see as actually 
verifiable truth claims that are backed by the vast majority of climate scientists. In a similar way, if a political party is lapsing into beyond norms or is a politician is lying, you do not have to quote them or you can actually explicitly say they're lying without being seen as losing your sense of balance. The problem is that people seem are worried about seeming biased when they're actually just doing their job and calling out misinformation. I understand. So you, you might, if you're the, the author of a piece, you might say, however, this is inaccurate. Yes. You might, you might say that. Well, you might do something like Daniel Dale, but Daniel Dale is not in the newsroom. He's just an independent, well, not independent, he's an in-house fact-checker and that's his role. But that kind of approach to journalism could be more common, even amongst political journalists. So, mm. And that applies to New Zealand as well. When someone like Tikahika or Jamie Lee Ross or even a mainstream politician like Jacinda Ardern say something untrue, it's good practice to call that out and not just dutifully print the lie alongside an opposing view. And that requires us to trust our journalists. It does. It does, but it, it just requires our journalists to... Uh, see their job as that old journalism truism. You know, your job is not... When someone tells you it's raining and someone tells you it's fine, your job is not to quote them both. It's to look out the window. Hayden, thank you very much. Fascinating conversation. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for having me.